and the poetic. You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com. And welcome to Morph Mom Moments. We've taken a little bit of a vacation, so it's very exciting to be back tonight. And I'm very excited with the guest that we have tonight. And I'm just thrilled to share his story and what's about to come. So welcome, and thank you for all coming back. Um, quickly, uh, Morph Mom Moments for those of you who are new to this station and to what I do. My name is Kathleen Smith. I started Morph Mom about five years ago, was a former prosecutor many, many, many years ago, then a mom, and then couldn't figure out what to do. So I thought rather than 
reinvent the wheel. I was going to go out and figure out what everybody else was doing and hopefully they could share their stories, the steps that they took to get there and provide inspiration for other moms and women out there looking to get back in to start over or to start something new. And over the past five years, it's been so exciting. I travel the country. I've met women all over the place. We do cocktail parties around the country. I write for Huffington Post. We have this fun radio show. We do classes. Um, visit this website, morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com, to see what's coming up. But what's so exciting and really, really fun about Morphmom is the radio show and the guests that I get to meet. And one such guest is on with us tonight, and it's an absolute honor, and I'm thrilled, and I'm so excited, and I can't even, I don't even know how to describe how happy I am about tonight. I want to welcome Tom Jennings to the show tonight. Tom is currently the president and executive producer of 1895 uh, Films. He's a Peabody Award winner uh, for documentary filmmaking, and he's also a, a journalist. He has written, produced, and directed over 400 hours of programming. These topics range from uh, politics to religion to history to sports to crime to mystery to you name it and that's just to name a few uh he's produced uh documentaries around the globe he's as i said award nominated um and uh, and received many awards as well uh, of these documentary films and i'm gonna ask tom to more to go into the films that he's done but most recently and why we're speaking with tom tonight is about his documentary film that will be premiering monday uh, August 14th on, Nash, on Nat Geo, Diana, in her own words. So, Tom, uh, with that, welcome to the show. Kathleen, thank you so very much, and I think it's terrific what you do, and I'm really honored to be a part of your program. Thank you, and it's such an honor to have you. Um, so, Tom, tell me a little bit about sort of your journey and how you got to where you are today. Okay. Well, uh, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio which I'm very proud of, and I uh, went to journalism school at Kent State University and uh, worked at newspapers for several years and wound up in Southern California. And um, as a young journalist, I uh, had the unique experience of uh, covering uh, the O.J. Simpson criminal trial. And uh, while I was covering that, um, I guess I could say I got into journalism because I was a bit of an idealist. And uh, my experience uh, covering the OJ trial led me to think, mm, maybe I want to be doing something else. Um, it, you know, it became such a circus, and um, I just uh, kind of lost my drive for it. And at that time, fortunately for me, that's right when cable television was starting to take off, um, expanding uh, places like Discovery Channel had come online, History Channel was happening, and a friend of mine knew someone who needed a script written for a Discovery Channel show, and the production company didn't want to uh, hire me because I'd never written for television, even <laughs> though I'd done a lot of writing uh, for print. Um, and I said, hey, just uh, show me what you like, and I'll make it just like that, you know, so they were giving me scripts and say, make it like this, <laughs> and that's how it started, and because I came out of print, I was able to write fast and uh, didn't mind taking notes from uh, people, so uh, they just kept giving me more and more and more, and uh, even though I never went to film school, I learned going out, doing interviews from uh, film crews all, all over the world, you know, like, how do you do this? Why do you do that? 
And in 2004, I started my own company uh, when I was lucky enough to sell something to Discovery on my own. And I've been uh, doing it uh, um, with my own company ever since. So exciting. I remember I was back in the prosecutor's office during the OJ trial and just watching it every minute of every, like as much as we could get of it. And I guess that was the first time, really, that was sort of the first introduction into the cable realm of, of sort of experiencing something live constantly. Yeah, that, you know, it was on 24-7 back then. Yeah. You know, when it was happening, it was, uh, you know, people call it the first reality show, and I think that's probably a pretty good description. <laughs> uh, everybody knew the characters, and, you know, it just was, uh, it, you could not escape it when it was on. Right. And, uh, and it was, I, I never was invited to more dinner parties in my life <laughs> than when I was covering the OJ trial. But <laughs> I just... You know, when you're there, it's like, a, you know, anything else. It's like if you live in New York City, you, you never notice the Statue of Liberty. Well, when you cover the O.J. trial, you uh, kind of get really sick of uh, talking about O.J. after right, a while. Right, That's exactly what happened to me. So when you you made the switch, so you, so you started your own company, how do you begin? So now you've, you've switched from journalism, you've switched to documentaries. And you've written this, you've written now, but how do you know where to start? Well, you know, you've, uh, what it is, it's kind of like a blending of uh, art and commerce, you know. Um, you have to figure out what it is uh, the networks are looking for, what's their audience, what uh, are the development executives at various networks, what do they want, and then what is it that you want to make, and you have to find kind of a balance between the two. And uh, fortunately, having been a reporter and kind of being a generalist, it's like, okay, well, do you want science now? I could do something on science or do you, history, not a problem. And, uh, you know, so it's uh, figuring out who wanted what when and then tailoring my ideas. Oftentimes, especially when you're uh, starting a production company, you have to go to the networks and pitch them. You know, you have to convince them that you've got something that no one else can get right. and something really unique and fun that, uh, uh, you know, they definitely want to commission from you. And it's a, it's a, actually a very long and arduous process. <laughs> but if you stick with it, um, it, it definitely uh, will work out. And it's worked out for me. And I'm able to continue doing kind of like a quasi-journalism with the types of programming that I get to do, it's not always easy, especially with the rise of reality. About five or six, seven years ago, it seemed like everyone was going that direction, but now, fortunately, a lot of the networks are saying, no, we want the good stories, uh, so come on back and tell <laughs> us another story that we can put on the air. So when they do that, do you have ideas in mind? Now, will you say to them, you know, here's something we could do, here's something, or do they identify and say we want something historical mm -hmm. this month, or, you know, not this month, I guess it takes a lot longer than that, but this is what we're looking for. Yeah, they, they usually give you, like, um, general uh, topics. Nowadays, they use a term that I'm, I'm not particularly fond of, but a lot of them now use it, they call it buckets. You know, so we have a history bucket, and we have a science bucket, and uh, a lot of them will be like, you know, well, we want history, but not before the Second World War. Or right. uh, we're looking for science, but mostly we're looking for space. You know, so 
they do give you guidelines and it's very hard because as you can imagine you know a lot of people would really like to be doing this kind of work because it, it is fascinating it can take you all over the world you meet all kinds of wonderful people and um you get to be creative uh, but, you know, there's the business side of it in that you have to sell uh, to them. So you have to be part salesman. I kind of do everything. We have a small company. And, um, you know, I figure if I'm going to have my ideas go in front of a network executive, um, no one can represent them better than me. Right. And, and oftentimes, I'm, I'm sure you can appreciate this uh, being in the media, uh, you know, uh, you have to think on your feet because you'll have something that they kind of like, but they'll want it tailored a little bit. And if you can figure out how to tailor it in the moment, then the conversation continues instead of going away and getting at the back of the line and <laughs> hoping to get their attention again. So it's, um, you know, it's a challenge to sell it, and then they, it's challenging to make it, and you're given a particular budget that you have to stick within. So th there's that balance between art and commerce and, you know, trying to make uh, your vision, if you want to call it that, you know, what you would like it to be, fit what uh, a particular network wants it to be, and then do it for the price that they are uh, able to pay. It's so interesting. So you've covered, I mean, you've covered everything, but documentary. I've covered a lot of different types of things. And they're fascinating. I mean, from, from the mob to Martin Luther King to JFK and now Di and Princess Diana. And what was it like tackling such different subject topics or topic matters? Well, you know, um, I, I've, I've always been fascinated just by great stories and a lot of the ones that we've done, the ones that you've mentioned, for example, one of my favorite things when I was a reporter and then uh, do, uh, you know, going on and doing documentaries for television, so I like to find stories that people think they know everything about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. I'm sure you know what I mean, Kathleen. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, I know everything about that. Uh, you know, I don't need to hear any more about Martin Luther King's assassination. And then... When you go and you start to explore and see what's there, you start to find things, uh, media especially, that's what we're always looking for, uh, you know, new old media, you know, where uh, it, it's either been forgotten or got, fell through the cracks. I mean, people always ask me, well, how do you find all of this stuff? Right. And it's, it's often just there um, and uh, and the reason is uh, producers uh, who make nonfiction television they'll ask for you know uh, a, a reel from say NBC or something like that and they'll just give them like well here's what we give everybody else and um, the way the news business always has worked and especially for footage gathering is uh, you know there's events that are occurring there's camera crews that are out filming, and they're filming and filming and filming, and back in the day they used tape. And when they would finish their, say, 30-minute tape, that tape would come out of their their camera, and the tape would be rushed back to a studio, and uh, some frantic editor would be shuttling through that tape uh, looking for the best shots for that evening news, uh, the newscast. And they'd pick maybe four or five minutes from which they'd work, and then they'd pop that tape out of their, their editing machine, they'd put it on a shelf, and 25 minutes of what was shot uh, on the scene are basically lost to time.
And when we go and look for stuff, I say, I, I don't want the stuff that was cut for, that went on the air. I, I want to look for the rest of that tape because that's where entire worlds lie. And do they keep all that footage is preserved? No. Therein lies another big drag. (laughs) Surprisingly, um, a lot of you know one of the other things that we do, and Martin Luther King is a good example, and we did it with Diana as well. Is we didn't use national broadcasts, very familiar faces, for example, wherever we could avoid it. We'd look for local reporting. So, for uh, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis in 1968. And instead of pulling in Walter Cronkite footage from CBS, for example, we went to Memphis and we went to the local affiliates and we said, you know, we want the local guys. We want local television and radio uh, because to anyone outside of Memphis, um, no one's going to know who those people are. And and that's a way of presenting a story, like I said, that you think you know, but you know what? A lot of other people reported on this. They had other points of view, meaning, you know, their cameras were somewhere else. And we're going to show it to you in a way that's going to feel completely brand new. It must be so exciting when you find that snippet or that reel or that. Oh, my God. It just has to be the most exciting thing. It's, you know, it's. I don't know, part of the search, maybe it's because of my journalism background, but the search is part of the fun of it, where, because you find things um, in places where just people have never bothered to look. Um, right. A film we did for National Geographic that actually led to this one with Diana, uh, we did, um, oh, going on two years ago, we did a film on the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. And um, uh, these archive films, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of them now because they've become very popular. Uh, We don't do solely that, but, you know, we're going to certainly give the networks what they want. Um, They have no narrator and there's no interviews. We don't we don't go out and interview experts and say, tell us what it was like, you know, or uh, we we try and find the media from the time and then we stitched together and, and everything that we, we can possibly get our hands on from, you know, in this case uh, with Challenger NASA recordings and their behind the scenes video, uh, certainly television reports that were going on. And a good example of this, and it's really just trying to think outside the box as storytellers is, um, uh, you know, sadly, one of the uh, astronauts on board the Challenger was the first teacher in space, Krista McAuliffe. And Krista was from Concord, New Hampshire. And uh, I had looked at other documentaries about Challenger uh, that were done prior to ours. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of the typical kind of coverage that we're all used to seeing, especially from that terrible day. And I thought, I wonder, you know, if there's some radio station in Concord, New Hampshire, where Krista was from, that covered this. And sure enough, we um, called up there, and there was a small radio station where the news director at the time, uh, because Krista McAuliffe became an international hero when she was named to the program, they made it, uh, you know, their mission for that year 
to follow her around and to report on her and to, you know, celebrate her because she was a hometown hero. And they had kept all of their challenger coverage from when Krista McAuliffe was, uh, you know, named to be the teacher in space all the way through to their own live reporting from uh, Cape Canaveral when the Challenger unfortunately exploded. And so what happened was we wound up having a brand new voice. The guy's name was Jerry Little. He was the news director, and that was like the cherry assignment for that year. And when we called, the archivist at the station couldn't believe that National Geographic would want to feature their archive. He, I think he literally said, no one's ever asked us before. But yet here in Little Concord, New Hampshire, was some of the most amazing coverage of this international event, and no one had ever heard of it. So as far as storytelling goes, there's always another way in, and there's always another way to give you a fresh perspective, and that's what we look for. And, and what must be so exciting about that also is to that man, that station, that town, that city, to, to highlight all the work that they had done on this also, that's, I think, as you're finding all this amazing footage and things that are untouched, all these people out there have worked so hard on this, have done that, and it just be, must be so exciting for them as well to be recognized in this way, you know, that all their hard work has come to mean something. I don't know. It's just so exciting both ways, I think. It's it's thrilling, and it's thrilling to work with them. And you know, they they you're exactly right, Kathleen. That they, you know, they put their heart and soul into this. And because they were in a very small market, um, you know, uh, outside of their market, nobody really knew what they had accomplished. And what they had accomplished was as good, if not better, than any of the nationals had done, uh, because it meant so much to them. And uh, to be able to find that and then to draw attention to it and to, even though it was a very sad story, but to celebrate how they did their reporting at the time and commentary, um, it gives me, you know, a great thrill because, you know, I was a reporter. I worked for small papers when I started out, and I know what it feels like to do something really great and wonder if anyone's paying Oh, it's thrilling what you do. And again, this no one's ever asked us this before, I think. <laughs> we should put that up somewhere. That's so exciting. That must be sort of like every day if you can come home with hearing somebody say, no one's ever asked us that before. <laughs> Something good is to come. You know what? It happens a lot more than you would think. Um, uh, my, the only, the only uh, I don't even want to call it a difficulty, but you know, the only frustration is there's just not enough time to do every story that I would possibly want to do because you could revisit almost anything yeah. and yeah. find great material. And, um, you know, that's what happened with Diana. Uh, people, you know, as you know, Diana, uh, this is the 20th anniversary of her passing in Paris and, and you can't escape Diana films. They're everywhere. Uh, you know, they're, they're overseas. They're, they're here in the United States. You know, the, the major networks are running two two-hour special, specials back-to-back. Um, it's everywhere. And so one of the things that we tried to do with her 
um, was to find a new way in. And I think we were able to do that. And I think your uh, listeners, if they tune in, which I hope they will, will certainly be surprised on Monday night. There is no question everyone is going to be tuning in. And by the way, everyone, it's premiering on this Monday, August 14th, Diana in her own words. And Tom is the executive producer on this project. And it is so exciting because basically what – and Tom, tell me if I'm um, – misstating this but you found you have footage where diana was aware of these interviews that were going on and it's all she's sort of the narrator of her story correct the difference between our film and i can pretty much you know and i I hate to make generalizations because they're almost always proved wrong but (laughs) uh, in doing the diana documentary for national geographic that's coming out on monday um, I watched a lot of documentaries about Princess Diana. I watched, um, more than I care to admit. And, and the reason is, when you're doing these type of things, no matter what it is, you want to see what else has been done. And you don't want to, you know, do a, a, we call it a retread. You know, it's like, oh, you're just saying the same stuff over again in right. a different way. And um, so when National Geographic asked me and my company to... Uh, do something on the uh, anniversary, for the anniversary of uh, Princess Diana's passing, uh, immediately I said, sure, that'll be easy. You know, And they love this format that we do with no narration and no interviews, uh, as do a, a couple of the other networks. And, and I said, yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's Princess Diana. She was the most photographed person on the planet for a decade. Um, shouldn't be a problem, but Within a few weeks, we re, you know we were pulling in all of this footage, and it was you know coming in left and right. We realized that uh, we were hearing rumors, of course, from all the different archive houses, like, "Well, you're the twelfth production company we've heard from today asking for that stuff," and, and we knew that boy, we better figure out something different here other than looking for local footage out of small UK markets, which we wound up doing, by the way. And uh, these tapes um, were created by Diana and a friend of hers named Dr. James Colthurst in 1991, because Diana had kind of reached the end of her rope with her marriage. She was very frustrated, and she wanted her story to be told, or at least to be told in a way that the public knew that, you know, the fairy tale that uh, everyone uh, believed in was a lie. And so she asked her friend, James, who she had known since childhood, if he knew any journalists who would be willing to write a book about her. And you can imagine, you know, being a journalist and and getting that phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Because she had been very careful and walled off from the press in a way, other than all the photographs and things like that. But she certainly had been giving any kind of frank, upfront interviews. And um, Coulthurst knew a gentleman named Andrew Morton. And uh, so the way it wound up working was that Andrew Morton would write questions for Diana. Coulthurst would go to Kensington Palace once every couple of months. And he was let in normally because they all knew him there. It was not uncommon for him to show up. And he would bring with him in a knapsack, he would bring a tape recorder. And so they would find some quiet room where no one was around, and uh, James Coulthurst would interview 
Diana, but because they were such good friends, the interviews became just chats, as they say in the UK. You know, they were just conversations. They were two people telling stories. And when uh, James Coulters would finish each of these sessions, he would get a, literally get on his bicycle and he would ride off to a cafe where he would meet Morton and he would hand the tapes off to Morton and Morton would then transcribe them. And those tapes uh, turned out to be seven hours of them became the foundation for his book, which was published in 1992 called Diana, Her True Story. And a, a, a selection of pieces of those tapes were broadcast in a special in 2004, but nothing had ever been done with them in the way we have. Our film, you know, every all these other films that are out and have been out for so long, um, it's like everyone else has had their say about Princess Diana. And this film, there's no one else talking other than the media from the time helping to explain what's going on. There's no one else narrating this story other than Diana, and that narration comes from those tapes that were Andrew Morton's source material. And to be able to assemble them in the way that we did, to have Diana narrate her own story, to me it was it became a magical experience, and it really, in a way, is far beyond anything else we've done in that format solely because we have the person who the film is about narrating the film for us and it fit together so well it's almost as if she were able to sit down today and do the narration for us it's it's really incredible it's unbelievable so how did you excuse me how did you get access to those tapes or how did you find the person that said yes you can have them you can do this well believe it or not sometimes uh <laughs> you know and I, I i am a big believer in this coming out of journalism Sometimes all you have to do is ask. And uh, they, I called Andrew Morton's um, publisher, uh, a very nice guy named Michael O'Mara uh, in London. And at first, uh, you know, they were like, you know, you are uh, one of a hundred of people who have called over the last uh, 20 years wanting to hear these tapes. But then he did hear me out. I'll give him credit. Michael O'Mara did. I said, look, you know, we do these very differently. And I explained to him what we had, you know, how we were going to do it. There wasn't going to be anyone giving their opinion. There wasn't going to be, you know, uh, experts from today trying to figure out, you know, what did she mean when she said this? He was very intrigued. And I said, look, we just did this thing on the space shuttle Challenger and Krista McAuliffe. May I send that to you? And he said, okay, I'll give it a look. So we sent it to him, and uh, within 10 days, I was on a plane to London. Because they oh, said, my gosh, really? Yeah. They said, if, you, if, the, if this is how you're going to do it, where you're going to allow her to tell her own story for really the first time you know, for a documentary, then okay, we'll license you the tapes. It's That's unbelievable. I cannot wait to see this. And <laughs> Oh, it's it's... I have to tell you, it's uh, you know, I, I I try not to crow too much about my own work. <laughs> you can do it, <laughs> um, but Please. this one is a mind bender in in the best of all possible terms because uh, if if you have another minute uh I'll yes, tell please. you why I'm good until so you Thomas as soon as you're ready to go I don't want to keep you but I could talk to you oh, forever. I have some time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we do too. <laughs> the thing that you that you're your listeners and viewers will find most remarkable what we did is we went through her tapes 
and we uh, wrote down all of the story beats, the story points that she covered, of which there were probably 120, uh, you know, moments uh, where she would describe a particular scene. She would describe how she felt. She uh, obviously talked about her wedding. So what we did is we uh, we found the best stories that she told, and then we went to these lesser-known sources of footage in the UK, and we went to photographers as well, and we tried to find scenes that matched the story she was telling. So, so I don't mean to interrupt, but, but almost like... Is you, 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 you're watching this, and she's narrating what you're exactly seeing on the screen. And that does not happen very often with this type of programming. It, it, it almost never happens at all. And to have her being the one that's saying, here's what happened the first wow. time I went out after the, the engagement was announced, and she wore this black dress that her uh, husband-to-be, Prince Charles, hated because it was black and only people in mourning wear black. Well, we found some great reports about that evening and Princess Grace of Monaco was there and she talked about meeting Princess Grace. So you have her narrating the scene that you're actually seeing exactly what she's talking about on the screen. And it's, 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 it's a remarkable coincidence of events that we were able to put it together. So it's almost like putting a puzzle together where you may have seen the footage and now you've seen her explain what's going on behind it. And now when you're mm-hmm. watching her in that dress, you understand, you see something so much deeper, I guess. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's- you know, one of the things that I hope that uh, people, I hope everyone will tune in, but, uh, you know, uh, She's seen as an icon by many people, uh, rightly so, I believe. But, uh, you know, she's also criticized for various parts of her personality. And, what you know, and what, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that struck me as we really kind of laid this down and figured out what were the most important parts to put in, she was really self-aware of uh, she had emotional issues. She admitted to mental problems. Uh, in these tapes, she knew that you know she had come from a broken home. She re- recognized, unfortunately, maybe a little too late, that her marriage was not going to be the marriage that she wanted it to be. Um, and that further <laughs> stoked the flames of thinking like uh, of things like bulimia in her, which she speaks very openly about. And I was surprised at how um, kind of introspective she is in the tapes, and not in a narcissistic kind of way. She's, uh, you know, when she made the tapes, she was 31 years old, and she was trying to recount her life for this journalist to write a book about her with her blessing, although no one knew until after she died that she was the source. Um, Andrew Morton kept that quiet. Um, but she was someone who, much like many people in their early 30s, is trying to figure out, you know, who am I? Where am I going? What is my life about? You know, what is my purpose? She was always looking for a way to set herself apart. She considered herself a bit of a rebel. And to, you you just don't get that kind of insight about her when you're listening to other people tell stories about her. Right. You just don't, it's impossible to get. Did, did she talk about motherhood? Like, I know there was there was some postpartum depression, but yes. what was that Never, like? After William especially, she really, that was one of the things that surprised me as well. She, 
uh, regarding motherhood, especially for your audience, I mean, she talked very openly about uh, how much she suffered from morning sickness, first of all. And then she, she mentioned something which is in the film, which surprised me. She said, well, uh, one reason that Charles had a problem with her having morning sickness was that no one in their, the lineage of excuse me, the Windsor family had ever had morning sickness before. At least that's what she was told. I, I find that hard to believe, but, but that's, again, that's what she was told is like, you know, we don't get morning sickness in this family. And then after William was born, she does talk about how, uh, you know, she was so happy and so joyful. And she describes the scene. Uh, one of my favorite little moments is when she said, you know, William was born she said everybody was high as a kite and they're all outside the hospital in Buckingham Palace and they're you know doing that pub chant that they do, it's a boy, it's a boy, it's a boy. And it's just this lovely moment. And um, then she talks about leaving the hospital and the depression sits in. And it set, it set in in a way that was almost debilitating for her. And again, she's very open about this. Now, to hear her say it in kind of this forlorn way, this sadness, uh, you, you know, the way I interpret it is she wishes it didn't set in. She wishes that wasn't a problem, uh, but it did, and she recognizes it. And uh, you just won't get that kind of feeling from right. someone who is close to her telling you about it. It's, it's really night and day. I think what's so interesting, too, when you see this side of it, how it's coming from her directly, is her bravery, too, that she, think of how many people, not just women, just people in general, that this will help, your your rendition of this will help, because it's, as the narrator, it's her story telling how she felt this fairy tale story, who should have, it should have been the perfect thing, and all these terrible things that were going on, and I think she was so brave to share it, and I think that's why it's so important there's a reason that you got this and that you're sharing it now that it can help so many people, I think. Thank you. You know, I, uh, I think for all of us, you know, people have asked me, I, I certainly wasn't a, a royalist or some, uh, I don't think that's the right term, but someone who, you know, followed the story, you know, all of the time. I certainly was aware of her as a young reporter and I, I remember being very sad when she died. I think I recall distinctly when she went to an AIDS hospice in London yeah. and hugged an AIDS patient, which in the late 80s, uh, I'm sure you uh, can recall, yeah. that was just something nobody did, especially someone in the royal family. That didn't happen. And so uh, people have asked me, you know, well, why, do we, well, why is there this fascination today? And, you know, I think there's a lot of noise surrounding her. <laughs> you know, yeah. a lot of these films are... You know, it's just like, boy, oh, boy, the same stuff. That, and, and, and it goes back to your question about how we wound up where we're at and why I'm talking with you now. It's because we really wanted to do something different. If we were going to do something about her, we felt like it had to be different. But the reason, in my opinion, this is my opinion, why we're still fascinated by her is that she, as you said, she represented the fairy tale. She represented to, I, I don't, you know, her wedding was broadcast around the world, you know, almost uh, 800 million people watched it. Her funeral was watched by 2 
billion people, a third of the world's population at the time. And people wonder why, you know, what was it about her? Because, you know, her impact was great in that she was able to reach out and remind people about what's good in life. But, you know, it wasn't like she invented the Internet either. You know, so why her? And for me, after studying her through these tapes and her words and and all of the footage that we had to look at, she represents what we all grow up with when we're small children. You know, we all want the, you know, I want the princess and uh, young girls want the prince and, and the castle and the happily ever after. And for a long, long time, she was that person until that book came out, until these tapes were made. She was the happily ever after. And she represents something I think that's almost in our DNA that we so long for, but then we grow up and we realize that, you know, the fairy tale isn't always so happy after all. And it's funny when you're saying that, I remember watching, I was at tennis camp, I remember watching that wedding, staying up, I I don't remember what time it was shown in the United States, but everyone was up watching it and that dress and everything about it, it was perfect. The dress was perfect. Everything was perfect. Oh, she that thing. God bless her. (laughs) And just everything was perfect. And then as I, as you know, we get older and things aren't perfect and nothing is perfect. And that's what I think, or, or as a mom or, you know, I'm almost 50 now and as a mom and I can't wait to watch this because what I now admire about her most and what I think you, what you've done will present it so well is that she wasn't perfect. And that makes, I don't know. I think it makes her so much more relatable. It makes us, it makes us admire her even more for her strength. Again, as I said before, her bravery to come out with this. And that's why I think your piece or your documentary, which again will be on this Monday night on Nat G on national geographic. Um, and, um, is so important to everyone. Hearing it from her makes everybody else who's had gone through something or going through something say it's okay. <laughs> you know, if, if yeah. Princess Diana could get through this, I can get through Correct. this. Correct. If she could get through it, then, you know, uh, I certainly can get through whatever's facing me today. Uh, you're correct. And, yeah, I think that's in one uh, one aspect of who she is and why she still inspires people. It's a, a remarkable thing. But I think that's what you should take credit for. That's what I think is so important about what you've done. Because as you said, she's the na- Prince of Diana is the narrator of this story of her life. And who better to hear from someone who says, this is what I did, this is what I went through, and this is how bad things are right now, and there's some things that are good. And that's what I think what you've done is so important. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we got the tapes, just so, you you know, to um, kind of wrap up the whole story, what I immediately, after the first listening to them, I knew that this was significant. It was important. It was a part of the historical record. And we wanted to treat the, her recordings with great respect and to present them in a way that uh, would be fair to her and to the story and to everyone involved with the story. And we worked very, very, very hard to do that, and I think we accomplished it. Um, I have a question. So you're presented with hours and hours and hours of this footage and the tapes. And <laughs> how much time, like, will you say, I'm going to set aside four hours tonight? Like, how do you decide or, or how do you organize how you're going to listen to it and sometimes are you so caught up with it 
that you time has gone by and you haven't even realized that it's how, how long oh, you've yeah. been listening. Oh, yeah. It's like you go down the, the rabbit hole and <laughs> you're, like, lost because it's so fascinating. And then then you start to feel overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, I have a couple of really wonderful researchers and a terrific editor uh, who did this film who really gets the format. And um, the hard part is, uh, you know, the, the way we do it is we basically break it down into, you know, the easiest way is chronologically. Okay, this happened in 1982. Okay, here's all the 1982 stuff. And there's a lot of redundancy between footage sources. Like, ah, oh, we don't need that because that guy says it better. Or that woman is a really much more engaging than, you know, the headline that we were going to use. And so you start to pick and choose and pick and choose. And you try and weave this storyline together with the best possible material and the most unique. You know, so when, right. when you know, we, I always tell my staff, many of whom are younger than me, but, you know, they're well ensconced in this footage world now. I say, if you recognize anything in here pull it out <laughs> you know <laughs> and uh, really and, uh, it's, a, it's a good rule of thumb and, and we only use the parts where you absolutely you know there's no other shot that's available it's so famous that it has to go in so therefore it stays but otherwise we um, always uh, work very hard to find some kind of fresh angle and even with the photographers the royal photographers who we contacted and worked with you know they had taken not the paparazzi but you know people that were working for the newspapers for example directly on staff members they would take you know hundreds of photographs on a particular day of princess diana and they would maybe publish two or three and we would say well those are great but you know everybody's licensed those we'd like to see your contact sheets. You know, we want to see what was five shots before the famous one. And they would always say, but it's not perfect. And I'd be like, great, we don't want it to be perfect. We want it to feel authentic and real. And those are the ones that we use. And, and with all this hour, again, of listening and watching all this footage, is there, and I'm sure there are many moments, but is there a moment or two that you reflect upon that really hits you, that all of a sudden you're like, wow, like it just... You were choked up, or I don't know, there was something about it that you didn't know, or just the way she presented it, or maybe there was silence that created that feeling, but I'm just curious. Uh, you know, there were a lot. The, the first, uh, in, uh, kind of on a lighter note, the first thing that I noticed in listening to the tapes was within five or ten minutes, I was remarking to the people, uh, the person I was sitting with, it's like, oh my God, her laugh. She laughs. Like, oh. I didn't, I didn't know she laughed like that because she's Diana. You know, Diana doesn't laugh like she's sitting around telling a funny story to a friend. But obviously, you know, she's human, so obviously she did. And one of the big surprises that's in the program that has been written about a bit of late um, that has not been known before is that she calls her wedding day the worst day of my life. And oh. that struck me and it's not in the Morton book and I had to call up the, his publisher and say this line isn't in there and and I learned uh, from uh, from them that Diana actually had read the book and had offered a few suggestions and she felt perhaps that line wasn't quite what she should say at that particular period of time however it was in the tapes and so I talked with the publisher and I said well you know she said it and he said it certainly has been long enough and it, and 
in talking with her back then, she definitely meant it. So um, we kept it in. And, you know, to hear those words or to see them written down, they seem like such a damning statement. You know, it's so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's like the headline, you know, lady dies, says wedding, worst day of yeah. my life. But the way she says it, and then this is what struck me to answer your question, when, when we heard it the first time, she says it with such sadness and this almost sigh in her voice and regret, but not regret about getting married, in my opinion, this is how it sounds. It's regret that she could even say that, that her looking back on her own wedding, she now looks at it as the worst day of her life. You know, and, and, and that's the difference between reading this stuff in a book or in a transcript or in a newspaper and then hearing it in the show um, uh, uh, that's on National Geographic. It's night and day. I just got goosebumps when you were telling that story because she was, when you look back to Diana, right, she was the, not your typical royalty. She was this kindergartner, te- this kindergarten teacher who entered this royal world. And just Correct. Well, she was part of a royal family. The Spencers were did have a lineage that went back, but uh, you know, um, she certainly didn't expect to be uh, doing uh, <laughs> becoming the person she was. Yeah, right. That's for sure. She was she was looking for her own fairy tale. You know, oh. she thought she had it. Oh God, <laughs> that's so. It's so sad. But again, as I said before, it is so makes us love her 10 million times more than we ever did that she's so honest about this and again as i said before so brave and i think that's what i'm almost most excited to see on monday night to see that to see the real person really telling what it's like you'll come away with it i guarantee you and all of your listeners you'll come away with it with a completely different understanding of who princess diana was guaranteed now again it so the, the show premieres Monday night on National Geographic. Diana, Correct. in her own in her own words. Um, Correct. Tom, do you have another project you're working on now, or how does that work? Oh, we have several things in the <laughs> works that are very exciting, and they'll want me to wait before I talk to talk okay. about them. But there's some good ones uh, uh, coming up, and um, uh, I'll be sure to let you know. They, uh, some of them may be of interest to your listeners. I think everything you do will be of interest and is of interest to my listeners and me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kathleen. I really appreciate it. And I think it's terrific, uh, your network and what you're doing. It's just, just fantastic. Thank you. Well, sort of in the same thing, sort of morphing and trying to figure out what to do next and what to go and have somebody out there to, to sort of look to and see how they did it. And I think similarly, your stories sort of help people. To, you know, it, it sort of lay the, the direction that people took and how they did it and what worked and what didn't work. And it just... I don't know. So, yeah, I hope it. Uh, I hope in the long run it will uh, do us all a bit of good. Well, I, I am so thrilled to have had you on tonight. I, it really was an honor. I cannot wait for Monday night again, everybody. Diana, in her own words, on National Geographic, um, premiering this Monday night. You can't miss it. And Tom, I'd love to have you back on. First of all, you'd love sure. to come back on and talk about this afterwards, or anything else you have upcoming anytime. But again, you guys, we cannot miss this show or anything else you've done in the past. And I want to thank you for bringing this to all of us. And by the way, I have a, again, as I mentioned, I am the older set as the mother at 50 years old. I can't wait for this. But I also have a 21-year-old at home 
her friends mm-hmm. cannot wait for this. They're getting together Monday night to watch this. And it's fascinating. Oh, great. Uh, they should. Uh, it's going to be quite an adventure for younger people to really get to know Diana in a way they've never seen her before. And again, what you're doing is bringing something. It's, it's funny because when she talks about it, it's like, my daughter was there when she got married because, you know, they know about Diana. They read everything about her. They're, they're so fascinated by her story. And I love that you're bringing this to them as well. Sort of every age now. can. Well, I would love to hear how they respond to it. But maybe we should talk next week and have a little roundtable and uh, see what they learn. I would love that. I would love to have you back Thursday night. And I have a bunch of millennials who will jump on board to come on the show with you as well. <laughs> Well, very good. Well, thank you. It's All right. been an absolute joy talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for everything you've done. And everybody, remember, do not forget this Monday night, August 14th, Diana, in her own words, there's going to be nothing like it. There never has been and never will be again. Thank you again, Tom. And everybody, see you next week. Good night, everyone. Where lives were torn apart You called out to our country And you whispered to those in pain Now you belong to heaven And the stars spell out your name And it seems to me You lived your life like a candle in the wind Fading with the sunset when the rain set in, and your footsteps will always fall here along England's greenest hills. Your candles burned out long before your legend ever will. Well
torn apart Goodbye this road from a country lost without your soul who missed the wings of your compassion more than you will ever know And it seems to me you've lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset when the rain set in And your footsteps will always Candles burned out long before Your legend ever will Need affordable rehearsal space? Ready to record that hit? Want to learn new skills or repair an instrument? Host a listening party or just jam? Well, at Funkadelic Studios, we got you covered. Whether aspiring or renowned, join the Funk Fam today. We are conveniently located in the heart of Times Square at 209 West 40th Street on the 5th floor. For more information, check FunkadelicStudios.com 